Chapter One of a Sicilian Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush. A Sicilian Romance by Anne Radcliffe. On the northern shore of Sicily are still to be seen the magnificent remains of a castle which formerly belonged to the noble house of Mazzini. It stands in the center of a small bay, and upon a gentle acclivity which, on one side, slopes towards the sea, and on the other rises into an eminence crowned by dark woods. The situation is admirably beautiful and picturesque, and the ruins have an air of ancient grandeur, which contrasted with the present solitude of the scene, impresses the traveller with awe and curiosity. During my travels abroad I visited this spot, as I walked over the loose fragments of stone, which lay scattered through the immense area of the fabric, and surveyed the sublimity and grandeur of the ruins, I recurred by a natural association of ideas to the times when these walls stood proudly in their original splendour, when the halls were the scenes of hospitality and festive magnificence, and when they resounded with the voices of those whom death had long since swept from the earth. Thus, said I, shall the present generation, he who now sinks in misery, and he who now swims in pleasure alike pass away and be forgotten. My heart swelled with the reflection, and as I turned from the scene with a sigh, I fixed my eyes upon a friar, whose venerable figure, gently bending towards the earth, formed no uninteresting object in the picture. He observed my emotion, and as my eye met his, shook his head and pointed to the ruin. These walls, said he, were once the seat of luxury and vice. They exhibited a singular instance of the retribution of heaven, and were from that period forsaken and abandoned to decay. His words excited my curiosity, and I inquired further concerning their meaning. A solemn history belongs to this castle, said he, which is too long and intricate for me to relate. It is, however, contained in a manuscript in our library, of which I could, perhaps, procure you a sight. A brother of our order, a descendant of the noble house of Mazzini, collected and recorded the most striking incidents relating to his family, and the history thus formed he left as a legacy to our convent. If you please, we will walk thither." I accompanied him to the convent, and the friar introduced me to his superior, a man of an intelligent mind and benevolent heart, with whom I passed some hours in interesting conversation. I believe my sentiments pleased him, for by his indulgence I was permitted to take abstracts of the history before me, which, with some further particulars obtained in conversation with the abate, I have arranged in the following pages. CHAPTER One. Towards the close of the sixteenth century, this castle was in the possession of Ferdinand, fifth Marquis of Mazzini, and was, for some years, the principal residence of his family. He was a man of a voluptuous and imperious character. To his first wife, he married Luisa Bernini, second daughter of the Count della Salario, a lady yet more distinguished for the sweetness of her manners and the gentleness of her disposition than for her beauty. She brought the Marquis one son and two daughters, who lost their amiable mother in early childhood. 
the arrogant and impetuous character of the marquis operated powerfully upon the mild and susceptible nature of his lady and it was by many persons believed that his unkindness and neglect put a period to his life however this might be he soon afterwards married maria de valorno a young lady eminently beautiful but of a character very opposite to that of her predecessor she was a woman of infinite art devoted to pleasure and of an unconquerable spirit the marquis whose heart was dead to paternal tenderness and whose present lady was too volatile to attend to domestic concerns committed the education of his daughters to the care of a lady completely qualified for the undertaking and who was distantly related to the late marchioness he quitted mazzini soon after his second marriage for the gaieties and splendor of naples whither his son accompanied him though naturally of a haughty and overbearing disposition he was governed by his wife his passions were vehement and she had the address to bend them to her own purpose and so well to conceal her influence that he thought himself most independent when he was most enslaved he paid an annual visit to the castle of mazzini but the marchioness seldom attended him and he stayed only to give such general directions concerning the education of his daughters as his pride rather than his affection seemed to dictate amelia the elder inherited much of her mother's disposition she had a mild and sweet temper united with a clear and comprehensive mind her younger sister julia was of a more lively cast an extreme sensibility subjected her to frequent uneasiness her temper was warm but generous she was quickly irritated and quickly appeased and to a reproof however gentle she would often weep but was never sullen her imagination was ardent and her mind early exhibited symptoms of genius it was the particular care of madame de menon to counteract these traits in the disposition of her young pupils which appeared inimical to their future happiness and for this task she had abilities which entitled her to hope for success a series of early misfortunes had entendered her heart without weakening the powers of her understanding in retirement she had acquired tranquillity and had almost lost the consciousness of those sorrows which yet threw a soft and not unpleasing shade over her character she loved her young charge with maternal fondness and their gradual improvement and respectable tenderness repaid all her anxiety madame excelled in music and drawing she had often forgot her sorrows in these amusements when her mind was too much occupied to derive consolation from books and she was assiduous to impart to amelia and julia a power so valuable as that of beguiling the sense of affliction amelia's taste led her to drawing and she soon made rapid advances in that art julia was uncommonly susceptible of the charms of harmony she had feelings which trembled in unison to all its various and enchanting powers the instructions of madame she caught with astonishing quickness and in a short time attained to a degree of excellence in her favorite study which few persons have ever exceeded her manner was entirely her own it was not in the rapid intricacies of execution that she excelled so much as in that delicacy of taste and in those enchanting powers of expression which seem to breathe a soul through the sound, and which take captive the heart of the hearer. The lute was her favorite instrument, and its tender notes accorded her with the sweet and melting tones of her voice. 
The castle of Mazzini was a large irregular fabric, and seemed suited to receive a numerous train of followers, such as in those days served the nobility, either in the splendor of peace or in the turbulence of war. Its present family inhabited only a small part of it, and even this part appeared forlorn and almost desolate from the spaciousness of the apartments and the length of the galleries which led to them. A melancholy stillness reigned through the halls, and the silence of the courts, which were shaded by high turrets, was for many hours together undisturbed by the sound of any footstep. Julia, who discovered an early taste for books, loved to retire in an evening to a small closet in which she had collected her favorite authors. This room formed the western angle of the castle. One of its windows looked upon the sea, beyond which was faintly seen, skirting the horizon, the dark rocky coast of Calabria. The other opened towards a part of the castle and afforded a prospect of the neighboring woods. Her musical instruments were here deposited with whatever assisted her favorite amusements. This spot, which was at once elegant, pleasant, and retired, was embellished with many little ornaments of her own invention, and with some drawings executed by her sister. The closet was adjoining her chamber, and was separated from the apartments of Madame only by a short gallery. This gallery opened into another, long and winding, which led to the grand staircase, terminating in the north hall, with which the chief apartments of the north side of the edifice communicated. Madame de Menon's apartment opened into both galleries. It was in one of these rooms that she usually spent the mornings, occupied in the improvement of her young charge. The windows looked towards the sea, and the room was light and pleasant. It was her custom to dine in one of the lower apartments, and at table they were always joined by a dependent of the Marquise, who had resided many years in the castle, and who instructed the young ladies in the Latin tongue and in geography. During the fine evenings of summer, this little party frequently supped in a pavilion, which was built on an eminence in the woods belonging to the castle. From this spot, the eye had an almost boundless range of sea and land. It commanded the Straits of Messina, with the opposite shores of Calabria, and a great extent of the wild and picturesque scenery of Sicily. Mount Etna, crowned with eternal snows, and shooting from among the clouds, formed a grand and sublime picture in the background of the scene. The city of Palermo was also distinguishable, and Julia, as she gazed on its glittering spires, would endeavor in imagination to depicture its beauties, while she secretly sighed for a view of that world from which she had hitherto been secluded by the mean jealousy of the Marchioness, upon whose mind the dread of rival beauty operated strongly to the prejudice of Amelia and Julia. She employed all her influence over the Marquis to detain them in retirement, and though Amelia was now twenty and her sister eighteen, they had never passed the boundaries of their father's domain. Vanity often produces unreasonable alarm, but the Marchioness had, in this instance, just grounds for apprehension. The beauty of her lord's daughters has seldom been exceeded. The person of Amelia was finely proportioned. Her complexion was fair, her hair flaxen, and her dark blue eyes were full of sweet expression. Her manners were dignified and elegant, and in her air was a feminine softness, a tender timidity which irresistibly attracted the hearts of the beholder. 
the figure of julia was light and graceful her step was airy her mien animated and her smile enchanting her eyes were dark and full of fire but tempered with modest sweetness her features were finely tuned every laughing grace played around her mouth and her countenance quickly discovered all the various emotions of her soul the dark auburn hair which curled in beautiful profusion in her neck gave a finishing charm to her appearance thus lovely and thus veiled in obscurity were the daughters of the noble mazzini but they were happy for they knew not enough of the world seriously to regret the want of its enjoyments though julia would sometimes sigh for the airy image which her fancies painted and a painful curiosity would arise concerning the busy scenes from which she was excluded a return to her customary amusements however would chase the ideal image from her mind and restore her usual happy complacency books music and painting divided the hours of her leisure and many beautiful summer evenings were spent in the pavilion where the refined conversation of madame the poetry of tasso the lute of julia and the friendship of amelia combined to form a species of happiness such as elevated and highly susceptible minds are alone capable of receiving or communicating madame understood and practised all the graces of conversation and her young pupils perceived its value and caught the spirit of its character conversation may be divided into two classes the familiar and the sentimental it is the province of the familiar to diffuse cheerfulness and ease to open the heart of man to man and to beam a temperate sunshine upon the mind nature and art must conspire to render us susceptible of the charms and to qualify us for the practice of the second class of conversation here termed sentimental and in which madame de menon particularly excelled to good sense lively feeling and natural delicacy of taste must be united an expansion of mind and a refinement of thought which is the result of high cultivation to render this sort of conversation irresistibly attractive a knowledge of the world is requisite and that enchanting case that elegance of manner which is to be acquired only by frequenting the higher circles of polished life in sentimental conversation subjects interesting to the heart and to the imagination are brought forward they are discussed in a kind of sportive way with animation and refinement and are never continued longer than politeness allows. Here fancy flourishes, the sensibilities expand, and wit, guided by delicacy and embellished by taste, points to the heart. Such was the conversation of Madame de Menon, and the pleasant gaiety of the pavilion seemed particularly to adapt it for the scene of social delights. On the evening of a very sultry day, having supped in their favorite spot, the coolness of the hour and the beauty of the night, tempted this happy party to remain there later than usual returning home they were surprised by the appearance of a light through the broken window shutters of an apartment belonging to a division of the castle which had for many years been shut up they stopped to observe it when it suddenly disappeared and was seen no more madame de menon disturbed at this phenomenon hastened into the castle with a view of inquiring into the cause of it when she was met in the north hall by vincent she related to him what she had seen, and ordered an immediate search to be made for the keys of those apartments. She apprehended that some person had penetrated that part of the edifice with an intention of plunder, and disdaining a paltry fear where her duty was concerned, she summoned the servants of the castle, with an intention of accompanying them thither. 
Vincent smiled at her apprehensions, and imputed what she had seen to an illusion, which the solemnity of the hour had impressed upon her fancy. Madame, however, persevered in her purpose, and after a long and repeated search, a massy key covered with rust was produced. She then proceeded to the southern side of the edifice, accompanied by Vincent, and followed by the servants, who were agitated with impatient wonder. The key was applied to an iron gate, which opened into a court that separated this division from the other parts of the castle. They entered this court, which was overgrown with grass and weeds, and ascended some steps that led to a large door, which they vainly endeavored to open. All the different keys of the castle were applied to the lock without effect, and they were at length compelled to quit the place without having either satisfied their curiosity or quieted their fears. Everything, however, was still, and the light did not reappear. Madame concealed her apprehensions, and the family retired to rest. This circumstance dwelt on the mind of Madame de Menon, and it was some time before she ventured again to spend an evening in the pavilion. After several months passed, without further disturbance or discovery, another occurrence renewed the alarm. Julia had one night remained in her closet, later than usual. A favorite book had engaged her attention beyond the hour of customary repose, and every inhabitant of the castle, except herself, had long been lost in sleep. She was roused from her forgetfulness by the sound of the castle clock, which struck one. Surprised at the lateness of the hour, she rose in haste, and was moving to her chamber, when the beauty of the night attracted her to the window. She opened it, and observing a fine effect of moonlight upon the dark woods, leaned forwards. In that situation she had not long remained, when she perceived a light faintly flash through a casement in the uninhabited part of the castle. A sudden tremor seized her, and she with difficulty supported herself. In a few moments it disappeared, and soon after a figure bearing a lamp proceeded from an obscure door belonging to the south tower, and stealing along the outside of the castle walls, turned round the southern angle, by which it was afterwards hid from the view. Astonished and terrified at what she had seen, she hurried to the apartment of Madame de Menon, and related the circumstance. The servants were immediately roused, and the alarm became general. Madame arose and descended into the north hall, where the domestics were already assembled. No one could be found of courage sufficient to enter into the courts, and the orders of Madame were disregarded when opposed to the effects of superstitious terror. She perceived that Vincent was absent, but as she was ordering him to be called, he entered the hall. Surprised to find the family thus assembled, he was told the occasion. He immediately ordered a party of the servants to attend him round the castle walls, and with some reluctance and more fear they obeyed him. They all returned to the hall without having witnessed any extraordinary appearance, but though their fears were not confirmed, they were by no means dissipated. The appearance of a light in a part of the castle which had for several years been shut up and to which time and circumstance had given an air of singular desolation, might reasonably be supposed to excite a strong degree of surprise and terror. In the minds of the vulgar, any species of the wonderful is received with avidity, and the servants did not hesitate in believing the southern division of the castle to be inhabited by a supernatural power. Too much agitated to sleep, they agreed to watch for the remainder of the night. For this purpose they arranged themselves in the east gallery, 
where they had a view of the south tower from which the light had issued. The night, however, passed without any further disturbance, and the morning dawn, which they beheld with inexpressible pleasure, dissipated for a while the glooms of apprehension. But the return of evening renewed the general fear, and for several successive nights the domestics watched the southern tower. Although nothing remarkable was seen, a report was soon raised and believed that the southern side of the castle was haunted. Madame de Mena, whose mind was superior to the effects of superstition, was yet disturbed and perplexed, and she determined, if the light reappeared, to inform the Marquis of the circumstance, and request the keys of those apartments. The Marquis, immersed in the dissipations of Naples, seldom remembered the castle, or its inhabitants. His son, who had been educated under his immediate care, was the sole object of his pride, as the Marchioness was that of his affection. He loved her with a romantic fondness, which she repaid with seeming tenderness and secret perfidy. She allowed herself a free indulgence in the most licentious pleasures, yet conducted herself with an art so exquisite as to elude discovery and even suspicion. In her amours she was equally inconstant as ardent, till the young Count Hippolytus de Veriza attracted her attention. The natural fickleness of her disposition seemed then to cease, and upon him she centered all her desires. The Count Veriza lost his father in early childhood. He was now of age, and had just entered upon the possession of his estates. His person was graceful, yet manly, his mind accomplished, and his manners elegant. His countenance expressed a happy union of spirit, dignity, and benevolence, which formed the principal traits of his character. He had a sublimity of thought, which taught him to despise the voluptuous vices of the Neapolitans, and led him to higher pursuits. He was the chosen and early friend of young Ferdinand, the son of the Marquis, and was a frequent visitor in the family. When the Marchioness first saw him, she treated him with great distinction, and at length made such advances as neither the honor nor the inclinations of the Count permitted him to notice. He conducted himself toward her with frigid indifference, which served only to inflame the passion it was meant to chill. The favors of the Marchioness had hitherto been sought with avidity and accepted with rapture, and the repulsive insensibility which she now experienced roused all her pride and called into action every refinement of coquetry. It was about this period that Vincent was seized with the disorder which increased so rapidly as in a short time to assume the most alarming appearance. Despairing of life, he desired that a messenger might be dispatched to inform the Marquis of his situation, and to signify his earnest wish to see him before he died. The progress of his disorder defied every art of medicine, and his visible distress of mind seemed to accelerate his fate. Perceiving his last hour approaching, he requested to have a confessor. The confessor was shut up with him a considerable time, and he had already received extreme unction, when Madame de Menon was summoned to his bedside. The hand of death was now upon him, cold damps hung upon his brow, and he with difficulty raised his heavy eyes to Madame as she entered the apartment. He beckoned her towards him, and desiring that no person might be permitted to enter the room, was for a few moments silent. His mind appeared to labor under oppressive remembrances. 
he made several attempts to speak, but either resolution or strength failed him. At length, giving Madame a look of unutterable anguish, "'Alas, Madame,' said he, "'heaven grants not the prayer of such a wretch as I am. I must expire long before the Marquis can arrive. Since I shall see him no more, I would impart to you a secret which lies heavy at my heart, and which makes my last moments dreadful, as they are without hope. Be comforted, said Madame, who was affected by the energy of his manner. We are taught to believe that forgiveness is never denied to sincere repentance. You, Madame, are ignorant of the enormity of my crime, and of the secret, the horrid secret which labors at my breast. My guilt is beyond remedy in this world, and I fear will be without pardon in the next. I therefore hope little from confession even to a priest. Yet some good it is still in my power to do. Let me disclose to you that secret which is so mysteriously connected with the southern apartments of this castle. What of them? exclaimed Madame with impatience. Vincent returned no answer. Exhausted by the effort of speaking, he had fainted. Madame rung for assistance, and by proper applications his senses were recalled. He was, however, entirely speechless, and in this state he remained till he expired, which was about an hour after he had conversed with Madame. The perplexity and astonishment of Madame were by the late scene heightened to a very painful degree. She recollected the various particulars relative to the southern division of the castle, the many years it had stood uninhabited, the silence which had been observed concerning it, the appearance of the light and the figure, the fruitless search for the keys, and the reports so generally believed. And thus remembrance presented her with a combination of circumstances which served only to increase her wonder and heighten her curiosity. A veil of mystery enveloped that part of the castle, which it now seemed impossible should ever be penetrated, since the only person who could have removed it was no more. The Marquis arrived on the day after that on which Vincent had expired. He came attended by servants only, and alighted at the gates of the castle with an air of impatience, and a countenance expressive of strong emotion. Madame, with the young ladies, received him in the hall. He hastily saluted his daughters, and passed on to the oak parlor, desiring Madame to follow him. She obeyed, and the Marquis inquired with great agitation after Vincent. When told of his death, he paced the room with hurried steps, and was for some time silent. At length, Seating himself and surveying Madame with a scrutinizing eye, he asked some questions concerning the particulars of Vincent's death. She mentioned his earnest desire to see the Marquis, and repeated his last words. The Marquis remained silent, and Madame proceeded to mention those circumstances relative to the southern division of the castle, which she thought it of so much importance to discover. He treated the affair very lightly, laughed at her conjectures, represented the appearances she described as the illusions of a weak and timid mind, and broke up the conversation by going to visit the chamber of Vincent, in which he remained a considerable time. 
On the following day, Amelia and Julia dined with the Marquis. He was gloomy and silent. Their efforts to amuse him seemed to excite displeasure rather than kindness, and when the repast was concluded, he withdrew to his own apartment, leaving his daughters in a state of sorrow and surprise. Vincent was to be interred, according to his own desire, in the church belonging to the convent of St. Nicholas. One of the servants, after receiving some necessary orders concerning the funeral, ventured to inform the Marquis of the appearance of the lights in the South Tower. He mentioned the superstitious reports that prevailed amongst the household, and complained that the servants would not cross the courts after it was dark. "'And who is he that has commissioned you with this story?' said the Marquis in a tone of displeasure. "'Are the weak and ridiculous fancies of women and servants to be obtruded upon my notice? "'Away! Appear no more before me till you have learned to speak what it is proper for me to hear.' Robert withdrew abashed, and it was some time before any person ventured to renew the subject with the Marquis. The majority of young Ferdinand now drew near, and the Marquis determined to celebrate the occasion with festive magnificence at the castle of Mazzini. He therefore summoned the Marchioness and his son from Naples, and very splendid preparations were ordered to be made. Amelia and Julia dreaded the arrival of the Marchioness, whose influence they had long been sensible of, and from whose presence they anticipated a painful restraint. Beneath the gentle guidance of Madame de Menon, their hours had passed in happy tranquillity, for they were ignorant alike of the sorrows and the pleasures of the world. Those did not oppress, and these did not inflame them. Engaged in the pursuits of knowledge and in the attainment of elegant accomplishments, their moments flew lightly away, and the flight of time was marked only by improvement. In Madame was united the tenderness of the mother and the sympathy of a friend, and they loved her with a warm and inviolable affection. The purposed visit of their brother, whom they had not seen for several years, gave them great pleasure. Although their minds retained no very distinct remembrance of him, they looked forward with eager and delightful expectation to his virtues and his talents, and hoped to find in his company a consolation for the uneasiness which the presence of the Marchioness would excite. Neither did Julia contemplate with indifference the approaching festival. A new scene was now opening to her, which her young imagination painted in the warm and glowing colors of delight. The near approach of pleasure frequently awakens the heart to emotions, which would fail to be excited by a more remote and abstracted observance. Julia, who in the distance had considered the splendid gaieties of life with tranquillity, now lingered with impatient hope, through the moments which withheld her from their enjoyments. Amelia, whose feelings were less lively, and whose imagination was less powerful, beheld the approaching festival with calm consideration, and almost regretted the interruption of their tranquil pleasures, which she knew to be more congenial with her powers and disposition. In a few days the Marchioness arrived at the castle. She was followed by a numerous retinue, and accompanied by Ferdinand, and several of the Italian noblesse, whom pleasure attracted to her train. Her entrance was proclaimed by the sound of music, and those gates which had long rusted on their hinges were thrown open to receive her. The courts and halls, whose aspect so lately expressed only gloom and desolation, now shone with sudden splendor, 
and echoed the sounds of gaiety and gladness. Julia surveyed the scene from an obscure window, and as the triumphal strains filled the air, her breast throbbed, her heart beat quick with joy, and she lost her apprehensions from the marchioness in a sort of wild delight hitherto unknown to her. The arrival of the marchioness seemed indeed the signal of universal and unlimited pleasure. When the marquis came out to receive her, the gloom that lately clouded her countenance broke away in smiles of welcome, which the whole company appeared to consider as invitations to joy. The tranquil heart of Amelia was not proof against a scene so alluring, and she sighed at the prospect, yet scarcely knew why. Julia pointed out to her sister the graceful figure of a young man who followed the marchioness, and she expressed her wishes that he might be her brother. From the contemplation of the scene before them, they were summoned to meet the marchioness. Julia trembled with apprehension, and for a few moments wished the castle was in its former state. As they advanced through the saloon in which they were presented, Julia was covered with blushes. But Amelia, though equally timid, preserved her graceful dignity. The marchioness received them with a mingled smile of condescension and politeness, and immediately the whole attention of the company was attracted by their elegance and beauty. The eager eyes of Julia sought in vain to discover her brother, of whose features she had no recollection in those of any of the persons then present. At length her father presented him, and she perceived with a sigh of regret that he was not the youth she had observed from the window. He advanced with a very engaging air, and she met him with an unfeigned welcome. His figure was tall and majestic, he had a very noble and spirited carriage, and his countenance expressed at once sweetness and dignity. Supper was served in the East Hall, and the tables were spread with a profusion of delicacies. A band of music played during the repast, and the evening concluded with a concert in the saloon. End of chapter 1